everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by my friends over at a company called Real Mushrooms, realmushrooms.com. Um, Sky Chilton and his father, Jeff Chilton. I interviewed Jeff a number of episodes ago. Uh, really interesting guys. I, I really enjoyed that conversation with Jeff. Um, and it's a company that sells and distributes medicinal mushrooms in powder or capsule form. Um, I was really happy to have these guys come on. Uh, I think they're very much in alignment with the, the values of the podcast. Uh, as you all know, a big part of this podcast is uh, about uh, plant medicine, holistic medicine. And I, I think the benefits of medicinal mushrooms are, are truly fantastic. And I think there's really a growing body of work uh, that, that's really showing and alluding to all of the amazing properties that mushrooms have. Um, they sell a lot of different mushrooms, um, things you've probably heard of like reishi, chaga, lion's mane, turkey tail, cordyceps. Um, those are all mushrooms I work with. They, they're, they're part of uh, what I consider uh, for myself a, a really holistic uh, supplement regime. Um, and the, the thing I really love about their company, not only are they really good guys, I think they're really ethical guys, um, but... Um, the, the product is really amazing. It's all uh, 100% mushrooms. They're organic. Uh, and, and that's really rare. For better or for worse, the supplement in this industry is, is highly unregulated. Um, and so often when you get supplements, you don't necessarily know what you're getting. You may be getting some mushroom. You may be getting a bunch of fillers and other things. Oftentimes, even when you're buying what may be a mushroom. It may not have any of that mushroom in it at all, unfortunately. Uh, even some of the big, uh, I think even the biggest company that, that sells mushrooms, actually it's not the fruiting body, not the mushroom itself. It's the mycelial, which is grown on grain, and then those things are mixed up and then sold in a supplement form. So not only are you not getting the mushroom itself, you're getting the mycelium uh, mixed with grain. So um, it's one of the amazing things of real mushrooms is it's exactly that. It's real mushrooms. So it's 100% mushrooms, organic. So you know you're getting a really good uh, product. You're getting the actual fruiting body, the, the mushroom itself, 100% of that. Um, and again, just really great guys. I'm, I'm really happy to have them on and supporting this podcast. Uh, so if you'd like a really good product, uh, you'd like to start working with medicinal mushrooms, um, check out their site, realmushrooms.com. Um, and also listeners of the show. Uh, if you go to their site, realmushrooms.com forward slash universe, you get 25% off your first order, uh, which is a really good deal. And I think once you uh, uh, start working and, and tasting their products, you'll you'll really uh, see and feel a big difference. So uh, thank you to them. And uh, I think that's it. And without further ado, here is the intro to the show. On this episode of the podcast, I sat down with Melanie Reinhardt. Uh, Melanie was introduced to me by a friend of mine, uh, and I was really grateful he uh, made that introduction. Uh, it was really a pleasure for me to sit down and speak with Melanie. Melanie is uh, an astrologer, and we got into some uh, really interesting discussions. We talked about her, her life, her story, how she got interested in astrology, uh, what is astrology, the historical significance of it, um, how it really fell out of favor with a lot of modern science, um, but the historical origins of it, uh, the, the, the role it 
plays in myth and mythology. Uh, she wrote a really wonderful book about Chiron, so we talked a lot about that, about its mythology, and, and really just the power of mythos in our lives and uh, kind of the archetype of, of Chiron as, as the wounded healer and, and a teacher and uh, how that can really uh, help to elucidate certain things in our lives. So it was a really fascinating conversation. I, I really enjoyed speaking with Melanie. She has a, a beautiful voice and presence. I could uh, listen to her talk about myth uh, for, for hours on end. So um, thank you to her for coming on. And uh, I hope you all really enjoyed this episode. Um, as always, uh, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. It's what allows me to continue bringing on these guests and uh, doing all the work required to get these shows out. Patreon is a really good option. It's a website you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, there's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Um, so if you feel like you're gaining something from this podcast, that's a, a really beautiful way to uh, to reciprocate. To all of the patrons, to all of the supporters on Patreon, as always, thank you very much for your help. Uh, I, I very much appreciate it. Um, if you're not able to do that, um, doing some of the, the simple things, if you're watching this, the video version on YouTube or Spotify, um, but in YouTube, uh, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, uh, the, those things really help with the algorithms, uh, leaving any questions or comments in the comment section. And then if you're listening to this uh, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts is still the, the big one. Um, also following the show and leaving a starred rating and a short review is always a really big help. So uh, I think that's it. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Melanie. Running out from the maze. Running out from the maze. Running out of the maze today. Running out from the maze. Running out from the maze. Running out from the maze today. Well, Melanie, thank you very much for coming on. Um, we were just talking a little bit before, and <clears throat> you were recommended to me by a friend of mine who, who's also uh, someone who, who has worked with me. Um, he's, he's also from the UK. His name is James Robinson. And he spoke very highly of you, and uh, I, I, I hadn't heard of you, but then I, based on his recommendation, I started doing some research, and um, also, as we were mentioning, a, a lot of the, the podcast, one of the main themes is kind of plant medicine and, and shamanism and esoteric traditions and religion and spirituality, and uh, astrology is something that's that's always uh, really interested me, and, and it, it very much, I think, ties into my own interest in, in ancient cultures and, and their deep knowledge of, of the cosmos and astrology and, and even, you know, I'm coming from Peru and there's all of these megalithic structures which have this uh, just amazingly precise astronomical configuration. So it, it's a field that really interests me and, and at the same time it's something that I feel I, I don't know as much as I should about. So when, when he recommended you, it was really um, I think serendipitous and a pleasure to have you come and, and speak a bit about your work. And so maybe just to start, you could introduce yourself to the audience, uh, who you are, where you're from, and, and what your story is and what got you interested in, in the work you're doing. Okay. Well, 
Um, I'm Melanie Reinhardt, and I live in the UK at the moment. I was born in Zimbabwe, what's now Zimbabwe, it was Rhodesia back then, and lived there until I was 22. Um, I went to university in Cape Town, South Africa, and then I moved over to England for a variety of reasons, one of which was I wanted to follow the trail of astrology that had presented itself to me at the age of 10. Um, I was off school with a broken arm and the National Library of Rhodesia, as it was, was pretty much at the end of our road. So I used to just wander up there instead of going to school, which was great, you know. And um, I vividly remember that there was there was just one shelf about maybe a meter wide that was called Philosophy, Psychology and Religion. That's the total of the national collection of that subject area, right? Because Rhodesia was a very agrarian type of culture. And so there were, you know, lots of books about mending tractors and planting corn and doing all this, loads and loads of them. But only one on philosophy, psychology and religion. You know, that said, there were some real treasures on that single shelf, which I started devouring eagerly. And, you know, things like part of the collected works of Jung and Freud and Theosophy and some of the ancient texts like the Bhagavad Gita and all those kind of things. And there was one small astrology book, which very sadly I do not remember the title or the author. But what I do remember is taking this off the shelf and beginning to read it. And having this experience of somehow knowing that there was way more to astrology than what was mentioned in this thin little book. And, you know, at the same time, a real excitement, like having rediscovered something. And so I just memorized all the sun signs. There wasn't anything else in the book. Memorized all the sun signs and spent years and years just asking everybody I came across what their birthday was and figuring out their sun sign and thinking about the book and thinking about them and just trying to do, trying to learn observationally, etc. And then the next step on that journey came when I was living in Cape Town as a student and a friend gave me a copy of one of the books of Dane Rudyard, who sometimes is called the, fa the father of modern astrology, amazing man. And this book was called The Pulse of Life, and I still have that very same copy. <laughs> this was when I was about, was either my 19th or my 20th birthday now. And I opened the book and began reading, and it was like an absolute epiphany. Because I just felt, it was so moving, I felt that this man who I'd never met, um knew me way better than my own parents did, or even than I did. It was just inspirational. And in that moment, I knew 
that I wanted to follow this trail of astrology wherever it would lead me, you know. And so I did, and that partly was what drew me to come to England because there was n no particular esoteric milieu uh, in South Africa at that time, at least not that I connected with, you know. Um, and so I did relocate to England. That was also partly to do with the war going on at that time in Rhodesia. And um, our parents, bless them, they were very keen that me and my sister should at least get a foothold somewhere else because I think they saw what was coming down the tracks. And so with their blessing, I relocated to to England um, and when I first came to London and went to the very famous Watkins bookshop, it's one of the oldest and biggest esoteric bookshops in England um, with a long history. I, I don't know how long it's been going, but a long time. And it was just absolutely marvellous to find shelf after shelf of books on the subjects which had become very interesting to me. That said, you know, back in those days, that there, there really wasn't that many books on astrology in print. Like, it was pretty much possible to read everything that was easily available. And it's so, so different now. There are like thousands upon thousands of astrology books. It's like the whole... The whole field has just exploded since then. So now date-wise, I'm talking about the early 70s. Um, and it was just completely wonderful. Um, I then connected with a Sufi teacher. Um, I heard him speak in Friends House Houston, another famous venue for different esoteric speakers. And I knew that he was the head of a community here in England. And after the lecture, I felt so deeply moved by what he had said that I, I sort of cornered him after the lecture and asked if I could come to live in the community. And he was very quiet and didn't say anything for a little while, but looked very straight into my eyes and just said, why? And I came straight back and said, it's a matter of life and death, I have to come. And he said, okay, come. <laughs> and that began quite a long period of several years where I mostly lived in the community and did some traveling with them. But I mention this because it only turned out that this man, whose name was Fazal Inayat Khan, he was at that time the director of a publishing company who were Dane Rudyard's major publisher in those days. So in the community was a whole shelf with, you know, beautiful bound editions of Dane Rajar's work. And so that was 
what I plunged myself into and studied for years. That's really my main background uh, in astrology. I subsequently met Dane Rudyard twice. Once at a workshop he was giving in New York and once actually with my Sufi teacher who took me along to a kind of business meeting that he was having with Dane Rudyard. And it was Dane Rudyard who kind of gave me the shove to go professional with my work. Um, I... I, you know, I never made the aspiration or made the decision to become a professional astrologer. I really didn't. Um, I just kept on following this trail, which I found so enriching and which I loved so much to study. And, you know, just gradually, little bit by little bit, I got to the stage of being able to offer readings but it had never still occurred to me <laughs> that I would be a professional astrologer. And it was actually Rudyard who gave me the push um, to actually do that. So there was a very particular little trail. And, you know, once I realized that and did begin to work professionally, I also I'd, I decided that I really needed to get some proper training because I knew that left to my own devices there were all kinds of things I would never bother with and to kind of round out my education um, I did the diploma of the Faculty of Astrological Studies so I kind of did things backwards <laughs> did all my own learning on my own without a teacher without any classes uh, even up to professional level and then after a few years of working professionally, I then did all the kind of, you know, more intellectual study of it. And, you know, I sometimes wonder how on earth I would have managed if I had done it the normal way round. In other words, learnt first through the intellect and then tried to apply that. Because mine was a very experiential kind of learning with observation and feeling and attunement and that kind of thing, rather than going in first at the intellectual level. But people do manage and they do a wonderful job, but I, I'm not sure I could have. When, when you were younger and you were reading these astrology books was and you mentioned that there was kind of this this very visceral feeling did it feel like you were you were remembering something like you were coming yeah. home in a way or or was yeah, there just really something did. that was yeah yes i mean i could i could say that um i i could say it felt like i'd known it before or that it was familiar to me in a way that I must have somewhere done it before or something like that. But the truth is, I don't know. It did just feel very familiar. And yes, as you say, like a kind of a homecoming. Maybe to, to start, um, if people aren't familiar with astrology, how would... 
How would you define astrology? Maybe how would you define astronomy, cosmology? I think these are terms that that people are familiar with, but but also they they seem maybe in the general populace not to be so clearly defined. Right. Well, you know, I'm I'm no scholar, but I'll give you my own take on on these topics. Um, you know, astrology is a, it's a very ancient tradition which really studies studies a human being's life in relation to what's going on in the sky above. And there's the fam famous hermetic maxim of as above, so below. I personally like to take that further because in a sense it's it's only through our <clears throat> normal visual senses that we can think of an above and a below but how I prefer to envision it is that there is um, there is like a unified process of unfolding in the cosmos and we are all participating in it all the time and the language of astrology um, and, and also with its study of planetary cycles can give a very rich um, potential for, for the language of describing different experiences. And it also, astrology tends to adapt down the ages to the different cultures within which it's being expressed. And that I find incredibly interesting because if you compare different cultures you can see that there's quite a bit of resonance in the imagery and how the constellations are understood and so forth there's also quite a lot of difference but it is still amazing how much resonance there actually is and you know during the 20th century and ongoing there have been some discoveries of new objects. In fact, there's been an explosion of discovery of all kinds of new objects. Um, one class of which I became particularly interested in. And these are called the centaurs. So they're, they're in the general category of minor planets. And the minor planet Chiron was the first one of that whole genre to be discovered. That was back in 1977. And then from 1992, more objects that behaved in a similar way to Chiron began to be discovered, and they were named centaurs because Chiron is now like the, the chief one of that group, and he is a centaur. And when that whole explosion of new information was being presented, 
by scientific astronomy. Um, it was referred to as the, the most significant discovery since the time of Copernicus. Now, Copernicus was really the fellow who revealed to the world that it was us on the earth that were going around the sun, not the other way around. Because for a long time, astrology was basically geocentric, so meaning that the earth was considered to be the center with everything else revolving around it. And one can see, you know, beautiful medieval maps of the cosmos, very ordered and very beautiful with the earth at the middle, at the middle, and then the different spheres of the planets spaced according to their speed relative to the earth all the way out to Saturn, the last of the visible planets, and then different heavenly realms on the edge of that. Beautiful diagrams. And then a whole different cosmology came in from the time of Copernicus, where the sun was known to be the center with all the planets revolving around it. And so the, the discovery of these centaurs was said to be um, the herald of a whole new cosmology and the most significant set of discoveries since Copernicus. So it was really a big deal. And symbolically, I do find that so interesting because the majority of, of astrology now is still using the geocentric model, which... To my mind, that doesn't make it old-fashioned or archaic. It, it's a wonderful recognition of the fact that, you know, whatever we do with our astrology related to individual lives or even long sweeps of collective history, it's all happening on the earth. And so to recognize that is to see the heavens and what what symbolic knowledge they can offer from a geocentric point of view. So I personally don't have a problem with that at all. Can you speak a little bit more about the history? Um, even, for example, like in, in astrology, uh, for example, I my parents are American, but I was actually born in Sri Lanka. And okay. even when I was born, they they took me, or I guess they took me to to an astrologer who who did my birth chart. And uh, I was showing it to a friend the other day, and he was saying, "Well, this is more like the the kind of the Eastern way of looking at astrology, and there's yes. the Western way." And and I think a lot of people probably aren't familiar as well that. You know, one of the beauties, I guess, about modern the, the, the modern times we live in is we have become very specialized in things, and that's led to tremendous progress. But maybe one could argue that one of the downsides of that is we, we've lost more of this holistic way of looking at things. And 
And throughout a lot of ancient history, including the Greeks, which I'm sure we'll get into, or like in India, um, a lot of these fields weren't necessarily separate. I mean, the, the, the field of astrology was tied into mathematics and physics and, and chemistry and uh, biology. I mean, they were all seen as somehow interdependent. Uh, and now we seem to have separated those out. But as you were saying, the, the, the history of astrology is very old. I mean, all over the world. It, it was something that seemed to be really an integral part of of, of societies and cultures. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, in terms of the history of astrology, really, you can see it interwoven with many different aspects of any culture. And it's only relatively recently in the West that astrology was banned from academia and scapegoated as something archaic or even evil. Uh, and it was at that point, just a few hundred years ago, where astrology and astronomy became separate sciences, but they were, before that they were always together. And, you know, what's so interesting is that in Western medicine, again, a few hundred years ago, all doctors were astrologers because when the cures were herbal, they all had their planetary correspondences and connections and the making up of medicines was done in a ritual, manager, a ritual manner and tied to auspicious times in terms of the planets. So <laughs> the history of medicine is full of astrological references. And in fact, the, the Wellcome Library in London has a magnificent collection of ancient astrological manuscripts because that's where the history of medicine has, um, that's what it rests on in a way. Yeah. So when, for, for example, you were speaking of a number of years ago when when they found a number of these. Uh, uh, I'm not sure, but because they've been classified in different ways as, as minor planets or asteroids, but but these centaurian objects. I think one of the things that a lot of people have confusion around, and uh, I'd be curious what your what your take is is the symbology versus the, the, the literal aspects of these things. I mean, a lot of these are tied, for example, like the, that story of Chiron or the centaurs into Greek myth. And even with mythology, I think there's so much either confusion or, or different ways of looking at that. Um, but in, in astrology, when, when someone is speaking about something like, like the centaurs or a, a very particular locality in the cosmos, is there something that's that, that's simply only metaphorical or archetypal in that, that 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 object is embodying certain characteristics where the the mythology is 
alluding to, to, to certain properties that, that can be elucidated within the practitioner or, or the patient? Or do you think there's actually something, some sort of energy or, or something that's actually in that location that's also really relevant and, and the mythos is, is pointing uh, to, to something that's actually, as you said, as above, so below that, that in that, in that time space kind of way of looking at something that there is something there that's very powerful, that that's maybe beyond the, the mythology as well, if that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I greatly love and appreciate about astrology is that whichever way you look at it, ultimately it, it brings you nose to nose with the great mystery, which can't be explained. And that's that's not a, that's not a way out of your question, but that's the truth. As a practitioner, I mean, people can headbang for years trying to understand astrology and maybe finding the way that they think is correct and truthful and all the rest. But in practice, particularly working with the soul and the human journey in life, it will always bring you up to the mysteries, you know? And so in terms of, you know, looking for a foundation of astrological understanding. In my experience anyway, it's always a mixture of different things that speak to different levels of our being, you know. And sometimes the astronomical symbolism is breathtakingly literal. It It, it is so with the centaurs, just extraordinary. And And sometimes it's not so obvious, but, you know, if you contemplate it, you'll get there kind of thing. I've also had experiences with the planets where it truly was as if there was a being behind what we call a planet or a centaur or an asteroid or whatever, whatever it is, that there really was somebody there. Um, and that those beings, they they can speak. So, you know, a few hundred years ago in that cosmology, the uh, the planets were considered to also be spirits, which would then, in the magical tradition, they would then be conjured for various purposes. My experience has been similar but different. Like I've I've never tried to conjure any planetary energy, but there's no doubt that you know, in the course of studying and looking to understand and more importantly to also apply that knowledge for the benefit of other people that it is sometimes really as if they are speaking. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, the symbolic level is true, as is the mythological level, as is the astronomy, and there really is something out there 
but not literally physically. It's on a whole other level. So it, it's a kind of rich lamination of different levels of cosmology. And, you know, I suspect that, you know, if we take the history of astrology way further back into pre-literate cultures, from, from the research I've done, it does seem that pretty much every culture, pre-literate as well, has had some kind of cosmology where the, the heavens represent the spiritual realms um, or the realms of the sacred. Um, and a source of inspiration and enrichment and enlivenment. And so, you know, back long before the days when the ephemerises had been worked out, that's, that's a, a set of tables which give the exact positions of where all the planets are. It's like the astrologer's Bible, you know. But long before that was even constructed, there was still this kind of dialogue between man on earth and he and the heavens and that might have occurred in a number of different cosmological forms but the sort of basic principle is the same you know <clears throat> do you think astrology began to in more of the western world fall out of favor Kind of at a similar time when when other things, I, I mean, for example, we were speaking about plant medicines and uh, the persecution of, of plant medicine practitioners who were referred to as witches. And, and, and also, again, because all of these things have this dualistic aspect, but, but again, there, there's a great beauty in reductionist thinking. It's really what what leads to specialization and 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 mm -hmm. really the refinement of, of certain types of energies but but again then that can come at the expense of of a more holistic or, or general practitioner view and you see that even in modern day medicine that the general practitioner has really fallen out of favor mm -hmm. um I, I, I practice uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is a martial art, and, and a number of years ago, I, I broke my nose, and I was just outside of uh, Times Square in, in New York City, so, you know, some people would, would argue this is like the, the epicenter of the entire world, um, and I went to the emergency room, and they weren't able to, to, to set my nose, and this is in probably the biggest city in the U.S., one of the wow. biggest cities in the world. But because there wasn't a specialist there on call, there was no one in this gargantuan hospital who could set my nose. Yeah. Um, and it, so it, it was very fascinating in that way. But but getting back to astrology, um, when science began to become more reductionist, do, do you think there was a, a falling out of astrology in, in the same way? Uh, that, that maybe some of these more mystical traditions or shamanic practices began to fall out because, as you said, there's there's something that that 
at least in the time we're in or we were in or we are in today, that there was something that maybe couldn't be reduced or, or wasn't tangible or even we, we maybe lacked the tools to be mm-hmm. able to to see something. I mean, I'm often reminded of, I think it was in, in London, there there was a doctor, this was probably in the, the late 18th century who, he was he was ridiculed because he was delivering babies and he had this wild idea that the doctors should wash their hands before they delivered babies because a lot of babies were were dying and and he was ridiculed because he's you know all the 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 knowledge at the time was saying well what you, you believe in these like these things that you can't see that are in your hands that are causing infections of the baby yes. and you know that's that's like spirit science and uh, you're mm. mad and, and he actually died in a in a mental uh, institution because he was he was so ostracized and criticized and and it wasn't until they, they developed the microscope that they actually could see that that what mm-hmm. he was saying was true but but it, it just wasn't in, in in the field of perception at the time and so I know that's kind of a long-winded question, but but do you think there, there there's something that that astrology began to fall out as as certain particular cosmology began to form in society at the time? Yes, definitely. Um, Timing-wise, the the receding of astrology coincided with the beginning of the so-called Enlightenment period. So that's just a few hundred years ago. And interesting that you mention about the the dualistic framework because, you know, that there's nothing wrong with dualism in the sense of, you know, even cells divide to grow. But it's, it's when a moral loading gets put on top of that that things run into trouble. So... Um, you know, we could think of this very roughly in the sense of right brain and left brain ways of learning. Um, and there, if any listeners are interested in that topic particularly, I would really encourage people to read that wonderful book called The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist. It's a tome of a thing. Um, written in what at first appears to be really quite technical language. The guy's a neuroscientist, amongst other things. But if you get into it, it's an absolutely unputdownable book that busts a lot of the myths about right brain, left brain and all that, but gives a very clear description of how the two function differently. It's really about the how, not the what, you know. And so when learning and education was becoming increasingly left-brain dominant, let's just say for shorthand, um, all of the intuitive arts and the traditional arts, which also draw on knowledge coming from a different source, like inherited knowledge, for example, they began to divide and then um, astrology began to be vilified and banned from academia and all the rest of it. And 
it didn't ever die out completely. It just went very much underground. And then at the beginning of the, or the late 19th century, it started to be rediscovered uh, in, the const, in the context of esoteric studies. And I personally think that in a very secular society like we've had in our times, astrology does not belong in the mainstream. It really doesn't. And now we could say it's almost mainstream just because of the explosion of activity uh, in the field. But I don't believe that it belongs in the mainstream. I believe it belongs in the the underground or the alternative cultures because of this very different way of using the mind, at least in practice. Now, the field is big enough to be able to encompass um, very scholarly types of people as well. We've got lots of them in the field of astrology, which is marvelous, really. And there are even now university courses which specialize in the study of astrology. Now, that's not the same as training to be a practitioner, but it's a very rich and, I believe, necessary um, foundational thing that people can study if they feel drawn to do so, you know. But in my feeling, it is a living tradition. And it's one, like many living traditions, it's one that comes alive the more you work at it and the more you actually practice it. So I remember um, the astrologer Rick Tarnas, Richard Tarnas, who's written some very famous books now, sort of bestsellers, not just within the astrology field. And his most famous one, I believe, is Cosmos and Psyche. And he and some colleagues are doing some amazing webinars, which you'll find on YouTube. But I vividly remember, and this is now from a conference in 1994, where um, a young woman, obviously a new-ish astrology student, and was obviously feeling somewhat overwhelmed by the incredible range of different techniques that one can apply and different approaches and so forth. And she was basically asking the question of, well, well, what, how do I know what to work with, you know? And I'll never forget Richard's reply. He said, in astrology, meaning, here meaning applied astrology, not scholarly astrology. You can only work with what is burnished into your soul. In other words, it's our inner connection with the material and the field that enables us to do what we do, really. And there's no kind of direct, infallible formula for for getting that it's not something which can be got it's like it's something that comes by grace 
in response to the love and the dedication of the student. And, and not only the student, I think that's true of someone immersed in astrology for their whole lives. You know, you can't necessarily, you can't drum that up to order. You know, it is grace. Also, I think that the amount of, uh, the amount of knowing and knowledge that is revealed is really according to need. Because we do now live in the age of information, or some people say it's the age of misinformation. But at any rate, there is truly an explosion of astrological information out there. Now, information doesn't guarantee deeper understanding or wisdom, not at all. So information can leave one, you know, with one's head buzzing <laughs> with all kinds of ideas flying around in it, which don't really go anywhere, don't really connect. And so there is, a, a, you know, an, an ancient esoteric principle um, where, you know, inner knowledge is granted on a need basis. So if there are things we don't need to know about, they, they, they won't be shown to us. And yet if we sincerely, if we approach astrology sincerely with a wish for clarification or inspiration or guidance, it will come. And it's something which comes to some people very easily and naturally and I like to imagine those people have done it before, like in another life and so forth. And yet with others, it takes a lot of study, like years and years of study and hard work to get to that point where the wisdom stream is opened, so to speak. So it's also a very individual thing and people's individual relationship with the whole field and what it means, um, is it, that's very important. So in, in many ways, it's difficult to generalize about it. And also, you know, even though there's an increasing number of ancient texts which have been translated from the original language into English, uh, there's really very little material which which really speaks to what the ancient practitioners were experiencing and doing with the astrology that they were learning and practicing. You know, like the astrologer's journal. And I think of a parallel here, you know, that um, although... Many fine astrologers have written many fine books which will live on after they die. In truth, we won't really know exactly what was going on in the inner worlds as they were learning and as the wisdom was coming to them, you know. And so to go back to <laughs> what I said before, it's like pretty much if you really... If you pursue 
the understanding of astrology in pretty much any direction, you get to the edge of the great mysteries, uh, which can't be explained very easily. And in some ways we could say they're not meant to be, because explanation, that's a very left-brain activity, trying to get something into order or to make sense. But the way that the knowledge of astrology touches us can be so much more than that, you know. So I hope that's helpful. That's just some of my own experience. Yeah, it, it seems like one of the, the fascinating things about astrology is, at least in a way that, that many people use it, is this beginning to understand someone as an individual, their, their, their place in the cosmos, depending uh, based upon when they were born, what the energy of that time was. And, and so that, that does point to, to this individualistic aspect that, that every human being is unique, that we're different, that we have our own gifts and our own life path and our own trajectory. And, and I can see, you know, very well how you're speaking that, that, that especially with a lot of these paths that, that may be considered more shamanic or mystic, it's difficult to, to necessarily have a defined path because you are entering into so much mystery. Yeah. Um, having said that, going back to the, the dualistic nature, astrology is a field and, and, and like anything, in order to define something, we have to put some sort of parameters or boundaries or definitions to it. Yeah. So from, from your experience, what what do you think some of those those pillars or, or those boundaries or those definitions are that, that separate astrology uh, from other fields, whether it's in the realm of science, whether it's in the realm of, of a shamanic practice? What what do you think it is that, that defines astrology and, and, and what are maybe for you some of those pillars that, that actually give it, it its base? Well, I, for me, um, I think the, the the cosmological feeling, I can only describe it as a feeling, um, that while everybody is indeed their own unique individual on their own unique path, we're all part of a cosmos where everything kind of fits together um, in a way that can't really be totally simplified or ordered. But that's why I call it a feeling. And so within that, there's, you know, an enormous, maybe infinite variation of the individualities that are existing within that cosmos. And so, you know, the... The, the encounter with a person and their own unique horoscope, you know, repl replicated over many, many, many times and many years, it does also kind of encourage a real feeling of acceptance of difference 
So it, it's not that, you know, we all live in the same soup and we are the same soup, so to speak. Uh, we all live in the same soup, but hey, it might be full of carrots and potatoes and beans and all sorts of different people. And time and time and time again, I've seen that, for example, if someone is having a difficulty in a relationship, you know, be it with a wife or a child or a husband or just between friends, taking the astrological view can really open up some space. And there's the metaphor of space again. It opens up space around things so that insight can arise naturally because there are many higher states of consciousness which require the element of space. And indeed, in the Tibetan system of the five elements, they consist of the four ones that we usually think of in the West, you know, earth, fire, air, water, plus space. And there, that's not meant as literal space. It's a quality of energy, like a vibrational field, which is actually foundational to all the rest. And some connection with the quality of space, which we could just define as a kind of a, oh, wow, a kind of aha space, which is deeply relaxing and deeply clears the mind. Some measure of that is necessary for other kinds of insights to arrive by themselves. Um, and that's what happens very often when the astrological view is, is embarked on as applied to a specific person or a specific situation. And how I always think of it, you know, if I'm doing a reading, is that it is a trialogue, so to speak. So it's a dialogue between me and the person whose chart I'm reading and astrology. And so leaving space, as it were, for insight to arrive in an organic way, often within the person whose chart I'm reading. You know, to me, that's actually preferable. And it does open a very rich space for people's understanding to come forth by themselves. That's how I see it. So when, when you started working um, as an astrologer, how would you describe that work? What, 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 is that, what does that look like if someone comes to you uh, how would you say it looks to them, and 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 how would you describe what what you're doing? So that too is difficult, from the point of view that people come to visit an astrologer for a whole variety of different reasons. Now, i I don't really, I don't really work with people who are looking for me to prove something to them because that just goes nowhere. And, you know, that almost never happens. Uh, 
some people have very specific themes that they want to explore and others don't. You know, increasingly, there's now a whole, a whole cache of people who, down the years, have found their own way to seeing how incredibly useful astrology can be in terms of understanding things, also in terms of planning stuff. Uh, if you know what the planets are up to, you can sometimes make wiser choices in terms of what you schedule, what you choose to do or not to do, and how you run your life. That's very exciting to me. And that is now a knowledge which is filtering strongly into the collective, which is wonderful. You know, there was a time when, you know, even printed, di long before the internet, even printed diaries didn't, didn't even show the moon phases. Some did, but it wasn't standard. And now it totally is. And of course, there's loads of websites that give the astronomical details that one would want. And also there's websites that will give you astrological tips about it as well. So once you have a basic idea of how to engage with the lunar cycle through the months of the calendar year, you have an absolutely wonderful tool at your fingertips that you can make direct practical use of every month, for example. So by extension, there are some people who will, once in a while, when they feel the need, they will want to look more deeply at some of the other patterns also going on uh, in their life process. Um, and that's, that's very common now. And that's not so much a, ca a case of somebody bringing problems and expecting me to say something, do something that's going to fix the problems. You know, it's more an exploration uh, in which life situations are discussed or addressed and so forth. Um, but the, spe the specifics of why people would consult an astrologer can vary hugely. And also, you know, I don't like to define my work too tightly in terms of what kind of astrologer I am or because of course in terms of specialization that has also happened in the field of astrology and there's now loads and loads of different kinds of definition as to what kind of astrologer that person is but you know I sometimes wonder about that because that that might be uh, on on people's uh, you know, publicity blurb. But I think that, you know, the, the human soul process is the human soul process and it doesn't really care about the definitions of what kind of astrology somebody says they're practicing. And so it's the person and what they bring that will also dictate um, how how I would work in the manner that I'll go about speaking about the chart and so forth, you know. And I also, 
you know, down the years I have studied various different techniques which fit various different purposes, so to speak. So it's not a one-size-fits-all in, in terms of what happens in a reading or what I do, you know. One of the, the, the books you wrote uh, was about uh, Chiron, which was uh, discovered a, a number of years ago. Maybe you can speak a little bit about that. And, and then one of the things I, I'd really love to get into is is the mythology, the, the mythos and, and the power behind that. And, and Chiron seems to be something, I think it could be a really great example of, of, of the power of the myth, of the symbology, of, of how it relates to, to the astrology, to, to maybe even the times we're in. You know, it seems like they're there is so much there in the mythos and, and and i think a lot of times we we take these things almost to be silly stories that were just told to to children mm -hmm. but there's so much knowledge there um one of the teachers i have who i have a tremendous amount of respect for uh he, he comes from a a little group of people in the colombian amazon called the tubu people and before they use any any medicine in, in a ceremonial context, which they use a lot, it, it's very much just a, a very much part of their their daily activity, which is uh, bringing together the group in ceremony to to resolve issues, to discuss things. Um, but every time the medicine is used, and and they have many different medicines, they always tell the story. And and at the beginning, uh, I would think, well, this seems pretty repetitive. <laughs> you know, this is the, the, the how many times uh, that, that I've heard this story, but but there's a real power in the story and, and there's so much there. And, and every time the story is told, new information can be found and discovered. And as you would say, not only is it the words, but there's actually like these healing codes embedded within mm -hmm. the stories that, that actually the story themselves can become a healer. That, yes. that, there, that there's a real power within the story. So, um, maybe could you you speak a bit about about Chiron and and what your your interest in that is, and, and then um, you know at any point if if you feel like going into the the mythology as well, and and why and how that is so important. Yes. Well, um, I'll I'll start at the beginning. So Chiron was discovered in 1977 and all the way along um, his journey into collective awareness there were really symbolic occurrences. For example, usually when a new object is discovered well it's first given a number and then eventually a name is proposed, and sometimes several names, and then uh, this astronomical body called the International Astronomical Union, uh, they will convene a conference in which the possibilities are discussed and a name is finally chosen, and that process can actually take years but in the case of Chiron, the man who discovered it, who was called Charles Kowal, or Koval, um, in terms of where it was discovered, it was discovered in between Saturn and Uranus, 
So in other words, in between the the uh, uh, in the in between zone between the border of the visible world and the beginning of the invisible world, because Saturn is visible everywhere, and Uranus was the first planet to be discovered with maths and technology. I believe it is sometimes visible in some locations, but basically it's not really. Uh, and it certainly represents that edge, the edge of where the invisible world touches the visible world. Um, and so Chiron was discovered in between those two, which says volumes about what it's actually about. So the name Chiron was proposed immediately and accepted immediately. No, that's unheard of. And so that happened because Koal knew quite a lot about mythology and realized that this object that was discovered must have a connection with Saturn and Uranus. And so he thought about Chiron. And absolutely amazing. So, so right off, the connection between the science and the mythology was there. And I'd like to add as a sidebar here at the moment, for some of the later objects that were found, the ones in the centaur category, the names were actually proposed by astrologers and given to our contact in the, in, in the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, uh, which for quite a while was run by this very open-minded British fellow called Brian Marsden. And the way astrologers got their names was through doing the kind of empirical research uh, that you can only do in a, in, a, in a real living connection with a person or your knowledge about a famous person if you don't actually know them and also looking at history and looking at all different kinds of things in this very rich tapestry of associations. So names were proposed, there was about eight of them, that were proposed by astrologers. So there too we've got the symbolism speaking loudly. It's the cooperation, the fruitful cooperation, between the world of science and the world of astrology. So we could go left brain, right brain there again, except that, you know, that's that's simplifying a bit a bit too much really, because you can't class astrology as either right brain or or left brain because you really need to engage both in order to study and practice it, you know? Yeah, so it got the name immediately. And Chiron is a very well known figure in the mythology and also in art. There's quite a few famous painters who were mo moved by the story of Chiron and intrigued by the image of this hybrid creature being half horse and half human. So the story goes that Chiron was the son 
of a nymph called Philyra and the Olympian god Kronos who mated with Philyra when he, Kronos, was in his horse form. They were, in fact, both in their horse form because, as we know, the gods can shapeshift. So when Chiron was born and came out as half a horse and half human, his mother, Philyra, was completely horrified and saw him like a monster and prayed to the gods to be made into anything other than what she was, namely the mother of a monster. And the gods duly obliged and changed her into a linden tree, which in Norse mythology is associated with divination. So, Chiron was abandoned, at birth, and in the time-honoured manner of myth and legend, he was found by a shepherd, and in this case taken to the great sun god Apollo, who actually fostered Chiron. This too has an astronomical parallel, because so the theory goes in scientific astronomy at the moment. These objects, the centaurs, including Chiron as the chief of the centaurs, they were pulled into the solar system, perhaps at different points along the evolution of the solar system. They were pulled in from what's called the Kuiper Belt, which is like a great ring of matter outside the solar system. That was discovered in 1992, along with the second centaur to be discovered. Um, and they have very elliptical orbits. So it's as if the orbit expresses a sound of longing, of longing and desire to get to the light. Um, if you translate an elliptical orbit into sound, it it makes it it would make a sound like a police siren, sort of. So like emergency, blue light flashing, etc. So the theme of an emergence or a deep longing, longing for the light, because the sun is the center of the solar system, longing for the center. And so after Chiron was abandoned and fostered, he was trained by Apollo in all kinds of different arts, and skills, including medicine, archery, survival skills. And in fact, Chiron became, 
in turn the kind of foster father or mentor to, well, pretty much any Greek hero that you can name was fostered and mentored by Chiron. So there was um, a sense in which Chiron was able to train them in the gifts and skills which would help them fulfill their own unique destinies on their own unique journeys. So there was at one stage a great battle and during that battle Chiron was wounded in the leg. In some versions it's the thigh or the knee or the ankle, but it's always the legs. In other words, the animal half. And what happened then was because Chiron was a demigod, so half mortal, he was neither able to die from the wound and be released, nor was he able to heal it in spite of his own status as a great healer and mentor. So in, in one of the classic versions, it said that he lived 900 and something years in a state of perpetual profound agony not being able to find the way to cure his own wound and yet persisting with his destiny to mentor all these heroes and bring healing and kindness and so forth. Um, and the story does resolve in a rather interesting way in that Chiron changed places with Prometheus now, Prometheus is famous as having stolen the fire from the gods. But if you look a little deeper into that story, as with any story, there there is way more nuance in it. And so the, the reason that Prometheus stole the fire from the gods was because he felt morally obliged to take the fire back because it belonged to all humanity um, who were like the protégé of Prometheus. And so he stole the fire, got busted, and then was tied to a rock and every day this creature called a griffin would come and peck out the liver of Prometheus and then the liver would grow back and the bird would come and peck it out again. So a horrible image of eternal torture. So Chiron elected almost like a destiny swap with Prometheus. And that's like 
a kind of process whereby in a healing in a healing process sometimes the healer has to truly walk in the moccasins of the one who is seeking the healing and that's a very powerful metaphor for empathy so with the empathy that Chiron showed for Prometheus they were able to kind of change places in the sense that the result was that both of them were freed Chiron was free to die and thus to be immortalized in the constellation of Centaurus and Prometheus was allowed to go, to go free um, on condition that he wore a crown of willows that reminded him of his period of enchainment. So there are so many, so many little niches in that story where w one could elaborate the way in which the story of Chiron mirrors so much about the human journey, you know. Firstly, there is a sense in which the feeling of abandonment at birth is very, very common. You know, even with a loving mother and loving father, there can be a profound sense, not just of being abandoned by the humans, but being abandoned by the divine. So we kind of land in this material realm, so to speak, imbued with a very deep desire to reconnect, to get back to the garden, to quote that, that song from the 60s. And that is really a, a fundamental aspect of our sense of woundedness, that we, as it were, fell from a state of perfection into a material world which is not only far from perfect, but where we are extremely vulnerable to being wounded. And so it's it's not that the, the beginning of the story r represents inadequate mothering, although that could be included, but it's really there for all of us. And so, you know, the, the, the primary wound was also inflicted by Hercules, and there's a whole sub-story in that as well. And we can see Hercules as a prime representative of the archetype of the hero. So he he was, you know, the 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 greatest warrior, the most successful winner of battles, the largest, the bravest, etc. All in superlatives. Uh, and there is a way in which being over-heroic is something which does cause wounds, and that's not only 
in the narrow sense of the hero being close to the warrior archetype and warriors go to battle and injure people and get injured and so on it's much deeper than that and I think this is something that has been increasingly coming to light vis-a-vis the number of wars going on on the planet at the moment you know and at the same time more and more awareness of the whole phenomenon of war trauma and you know it's you know shocking to think of how recently the phrase PTSD um, was coined before there wasn't even a name for the kind of wounding which warriors were getting when they were away somewhere in war and came home utterly changed without any language really to describe what they were going through. Now that's all very much changing, you know. But it was Hercules who fired the arrow that wounded Chiron and many implications that we could think of about that, you know. Including the fact that it it was the animal part of him which was wounded. And of course, it's the lower half of his centaur body is what connects him with the earth. And so being discovered at the time that Chiron was discovered, in other words, the late 1970s, it's my feeling that that was the symbol of the opening of an era of really discovering a whole deeper level of, of what it is that we do as humans that wounds ourselves and others as well. And some of the basis of that, you know. So that's all very, very poignant. And, you know, in the chart of when Chiron, the astrology chart of when Chiron was discovered, there's only one planet in the element of Earth. And that is Chiron itself was discovered in the sign of Taurus. And I vividly remember the first time I showed that chart to a class of students. And I said, you know, here, here, here we are now in the late 1970s, Chiron just discovered. And if you would imagine this Chiron, this being, is bringing us a message, what do you think it would be? And one lovely young woman shot her hand up and said, he's saying, this is the only earth you've got. And there was just this hush in the class because that was back in the days when um, some of the more shocking and really pointed books and speakers and so forth along the theme of our ecosystem and how we need to stop damaging it and so forth. That was all just really in the beginning stages. 
and now that is really that is really mainstream in terms of awareness and it absolutely wasn't back then but it was it was coming you know and in a very literal way the whole phenomenon of animal communication has absolutely developed since Chiron was discovered. Not that it began then, because obviously loads and loads of people who work with animals have had that since time immemorial, but it wasn't necessarily named. It was just a kind of invisible part of the job, you know, but that's been named now and it's like accepted and um, even it's mainstream that there are people who can communicate with animals. Like if a pet is distressed and the owner cannot figure out what's going on, you know, maybe the little creature's already been to the vet, nothing wrong, etc. But there's something agitating the pet. And an animal communicator will very often be able to communicate directly with the little creature and ask what is wrong or if, they, if there's anything that they need and so forth. And, um, you know, that's just accepted now that there are people who do that. Um, and also, crucially, I think people are, are, have been becoming more and more aware collectively of the depth of wisdom that has been lost or suppressed or disrespected or denied on the part of indigenous people all over the world. And there are now all kinds of movements to re-honor all of that wisdom and people are genuinely interested um, not only in learning about it, but in doing reparation work to try and restore some kind of balance with ancient cultures. And also, there is a way in which the centaurs refer us to our own ancestry. The first picture that I saw of the Kuiper Belt was in New Scientist magazine, that was 1992. And the caption read something like, described these centaurs and also the whole Kuiper, Kuiper belt as the pristine remains of the origins of the solar system. And when I read that, I went, ah, ka-flash. Then maybe they also symbolize our own connection with our own pristine remains. And when I had that flash, it seemed to me that the notion of pristine remains was not only referring to our ancestors, but our transformed relationship with those ancestors. So the pristine remains because most people have got very messy stories in their ancestry somewhere. And sometimes those stories so need to be told or honored or worked with and healed 
that it's like those waves will lap up on the shore of our own individual lives in the present. So in that case, this is not about going into the deep past, sort of digging up stuff. It's about recognizing what has arrived from the ancestral dimension into the present that may be impacting our lives, our self-concept, who we think we are, and so on and so forth. Then the pristine remains also has a kind of celestial reference because in many cultures there are stories about how we came from the stars or perhaps after we die we will literally go to the heavens um, and how or stories about how stars represent individual wise beings and that kind of thing you know so when I read that little caption in the magazine all of those ideas came to me and as I've worked uh, with people ever since then so that must be 40 years 30 years 40 years something like that I can see that, that that symbolism and that flash that I had are really borne out when one is working in depth with people's individual process, you know. Then also part of the story of Chiron is that he had a wife called Shariklo. And... There's very little material about her in in the classics, in the mythology, which makes it all the more intriguing because then we don't even have much of the mythic story to go on. We've only got a few details. And then, astrologically speaking, it's it's down to observation again. So that's what happened when I connected with Shariklo, the wife of Chiron. It suddenly occurred to me that in, in the 900 and something years that Chiron was kind of dragging himself around in mortal agony as well as fulfilling his function as the great healer and so forth. I thought to myself, well, somebody must have been looking after him. Who was looking after him all that time? I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe it was his wife, Shariklo. And then I had a number of experiences, and this really was like the being of Shariklo. And it sort of came to me in a way that it was very difficult to put the words on. But I did have a go, and there's an article on my website about her. And I just began to, you know, quite systematically include her in all the charts I was reading. I also looked back into my archive of people for whom I'd read, you know, even decades ago. And that was how some of the themes kind of came to me, because I could see them actually working in people's lives. And that was very thrilling. And her orbit is a little bit similar to Chiron, except that 
the orbit of Sharikla does not go through the orbit of Saturn, as does Chiron. So she stays nestled in between Saturn and Uranus, which has its own rather charming symbolism. So Chiron goes right through the orbit of Saturn, and in that sense can be seen as the breaker-upper of established forms which have become too restrictive and like an arrow kind of piercing through the orbit and opening one from being just embedded in the material plane and material kind of perceptions, opening one to the um, the wider trans-dimensional world that lives beyond that and so forth. And indeed, sometimes the movement or the action, so to speak, of Chiron can feel very sharp and very sudden and so forth, as if we might become aware of wounds inside ourselves, which we've been successfully hiding from our own consciousness, you know. And that is, as you know, that is often a really important part of the healing process. And sometimes that's not fun at all, that part, but it is it is part of the healing. But now Shariklo doesn't cross over either of the orbits. So far, she's the only centaur that doesn't cross over one of the, one, the orbits of one or more of the other planets. But she nestles in between. So she seems to be representing an energy which can encompass the opposites in a in a quiet way without any sense of of battle or contesting and so forth so she represents a very important dimension of the healing process which we might call in telegram language holding space so the healing space is crucially important in no matter what the style of healing because without that the healing potential healing process is really really limited and curtailed but with a strong healing field it could be said that you know the, the specific techniques which are being used um, are not as important as they might be otherwise. In other words, there could be many different kinds of techniques when placed in a healing field will we'll all bring huge benefit, but without the field, maybe much less so. Yeah, beautiful. It's it's an interesting story for me as well because even my my namesake Jason, uh, ah, I believe yes. Chiron was 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 his mentor. I think yes. some people even say like his his adopted father uh, that that he, he was raised and, and taught by by Chiron. Yeah, exactly. And so there you are mentoring others now. Mm. 
it, it's a very I find it a fascinating image as well um, because it seems to allude to something that that for the Greeks was very important and I think again as we were mentioning kind of this more <clears throat> reductionist or, or specialized way of looking at things something that they really valued which which even in 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 our cultures i think up until very recently we did i mean even this idea of like a liberal arts education the the idea was really to to be exposed to all of these different ideas all of these different yeah. fields of study because that's the enlightenment came in, in that in in yeah. seeing things from different sides and and that archetype of chiron really seems you know he was a doctor, he was a shaman, he was a scientist, a mathematician, an archer, and a, musician. A, hunter, a musician, a philosopher, yeah. and, and kind of symbolizing like the, the idealized man. I mean, much in a way of like Leonardo da Vinci or Pythagoras. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. And, 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 and again, as you were mentioning, really drawing upon even older traditions, because when you look at someone like Pythagoras, we often attribute these these great ideas to the Greeks, and, and certainly they embodied those Greek those great ideas. But but if you look into it further, it seems like someone like Pythagoras actually went to Egypt and and was exposed to these these mystery schools of the Egyptians, yes. who were said to hold an even older knowledge that that some people would say originated from from Toth or from. From, from Hermes, from the Hermetic tradition. Yes, yes. And it, I, I guess that, that that goes into maybe a, a next question, which is, and I know this is a big question, but, but do you have a sense of where these things originated from? Because again, I, I think we often, we tend to compartmentalize these things, like these are Greek myths, mm -hmm. but they seem to be much older and to, to very much parallel, I mean, much in the same way of like, for example, Romans, we Romans have all of these stories and myths, and yet they seem to be parallel and built upon older Greek myths, and those seem to be built upon older Egyptian myths. And uh, you know, according to Egypt, however you want to look at that or how far back that goes, that seems to be built on on someone who wasn't necessarily Egyptian per se, but who came and taught all of this this wisdom this this knowledge and and so it's it's alluding to this idea that it keeps going further and further back uh, almost mm. in the symbolism of like the universe that 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 even within our our little solar system or galaxy where we're incorporating these seeds or these star beings that are coming from the outside. And it's like a seed of wisdom that then allows a certain enlightenment or a certain knowledge to take place. And, and, and the, the, these symbolisms and myths are so important. So I, again, I, I guess this is kind of a long-winded question, but, but do you have a sense of, of, of the origins of these, of where they're coming from? Much like you said, uh, which I think is very acute as well, this idea that in many of these indigenous cultures, they speak about wisdom or higher intelligence or, or beings that actually came to the earth from the stars, whether that be uh, like Sirius is a very common um, mm -hmm. uh, story. You, you have that in certain parts of Africa. You have that in, in, in the jungles of the Amazon. I mean, 
very interesting of all the stars you know all of the almost innumerable stars that you look up many of these cultures were pointing to this very specific star and saying this is where this knowledge came it, it transcended the 12 dimensions of time and space in, in the mm -hmm. jungle they would primordial anaconda canoe and it it brought with them actually these plant medicines and and they would say that the actual the, the reason for that is because humanity was suffering and that these plants were gifts from the gods so that we as humans could remember who we are and where we came from so that we could dream like god dreamt the universe into creation so it seems like there's these these seeds these memories that are that are there imbued in these cultures that that, that we seem to have forgotten and um so yeah if you have any sense uh, i guess of your own exploration or journey like where where is this knowledge coming from well I think that, you know, the, the contemporary interest in outer space can be fruitfully paralleled by thinking about inner space. Uh, if we, you know, if we are on the level of that duality anyway. And so I think that while the going back and going back and going back to try to find the origins is a fascinating process, I, I don't believe that one will ever get to the true origins by doing it that way. Because I think that if one would dig deep enough, dig down deep enough, within one's own being, one's own self, this, the sense of origin of those transpersonal dimensions is there as well. So it's not back in the history or out in outer space. I mean, it's there too, but that's not the only place. So as to the sense of source, I would struggle to put this into words, but I would say something like there is there is a primary source of of light and wisdom and love in which is reflected all of our human experiences, sometimes of the exact contrary to those qualities, and of course many more qualities, but there is a sense of an inner source, not only of my life, but of life in general beyond that. And so I guess that that interests me more <laughs> than the endeavor to find a source somewhere back there in ancient times or somewhere out there in outer space. This reminds me of a story which is in one of the books by Khalil Gibran and it was told to me by a friend. And I hope I remember this correctly. Yeah, there was a traveler who 
came by a temple and he wanted to see the wise man in that temple. So he, he was duly taken to the wise man who turned out to be blind. So the traveller was a little surprised but he asked the man, how long have you been blind? And the wise man said, from birth. And the traveller said, and, and what path of wisdom do you follow? And the man said, I follow the movement of the sun, moon and stars in my heart. Because obviously he couldn't see them with his mortal eyes. That also seems to allude to something because we were speaking about Chiron, this idea of the wounded healer. And, and it seems like there's something very powerful in that archetype, much like that story of the blind man that, that, that through what could be seen from the outside is, is something that's, that's disabling him, something that's, that, that must be causing him suffering or that there's a lack, uh, that potentially he's able to see in a different way, maybe in a better way, in a deeper way. And, and that there's something in that archetype of the wounded healer that, that um, you see it all over the world. I mean, even in like Buddhist philosophy, it's this idea that, that there is suffering and that the, the Buddha's transcendence was, he actually had to come face to face many times, constantly in many different ways of his own suffering. <laughs> his own mind and his ultimate enlightenment was, was sitting under this tree, which is very symbolic as well, and kind of transcending the, the different dimensions of his mind, all of the things, in a way, all of the, as you said, the contrarian things, the things that were holding him back in order to find what he was actually looking for, to be able to see. Um, and it, Often, you know, you were mentioning this idea of, of not only the wounded healer, but but also the, these these kind of symbolisms to other shamanic paths, which th there does seem to be this emphasis on 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 suffering or or darkness, or in in a Greek mytholo mythological way, like the underworld. That that it's very common that these these heroes or the, these archetypal qualities within us it's we we have to venture to the underworld or or here in the 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 peruvian andes they they speak about these three layers of reality the the ukupacha which is the underworld there's the kaipacha which is this present state and there's the hanikpacha the the heavenly realm um but it's also alluding to like we can't ignore the underworld. We, 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 we can't push it aside. That It's an integral part in that triad. And that it seems like part of that wounded healer's journey, which, which Chiron is alluding to, is very much pointing to that, that, that there is something that needs to be gone into in that, that wounded uh, aspect. Yes. It's a kind of a calling, really. 
a calling to explore and understand deeper realms of ourselves, I think. And in that sense, it can bring a sense of renewal as well as the underworld often does. Because if we think of it literally, underworld is under the ground, which is where bulbs and seeds live until it's time to sprout up above, you know? And I sometimes feel that progressively, um, world, world cultures today, so all over the world, there is a kind of calling to the underworld to, to enter a process of transformation. And that, that's something which if, if the call goes unheeded or for whatever reason we're unable to hear it, it can result in immense suffering. You also mentioned um, some of these other fields that, that you were interested in when, when you were talking about your childhood and, and your training, things like uh, Jungian philosophy, theosophy. Um, do you find these are, 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 are important tools in your work, uh, kind of giving you maybe a different language or a different worldview to, to kind of see things through? Yeah. I mean, in my actual hands-on work, I try to pretty much adapt my language to the person that I'm speaking with. So I don't have a kind of stock-in-trade language or cosmology that I kind of inhabit and always use kind of thing. Um, I... I I try to just be sensitive to where the person is at and hopefully pick a language which makes sense to them, you know. Which is quite important, which I, I think often we, we overlook that, that in order to to really be able to help someone, we, we, we have to be able to speak a language that resonates um, Okay, it's very fascinating here here in Peru. I think there's a really interesting example of that, which was kind of the 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 um, the bringing in of Christianity and and how a lot of the indigenous people actually really melted that into their cosmovision because it then gave the ability to speak to people in a language that, that they were able to understand, that, that something could be spoken about in the symbology of, of, of Christ or, or, or Mary in these ways that then really spoke to someone and touched someone and, and, and kind of allowed that, that healing to come in in a mm. way that could be accepted. Yes, where I come from in Africa, there was a large number, and still is, of syncretistic religions, meaning indigenous religions that became melded with um, 
one or more of the religions of the colonizers and some incredibly rich hybrids resulted from that, you know. You were you were speaking um, about this idea of, of kind of a that, that Chiron also represented a, maybe a type of like shamanic initiation or or even this idea of like your your I think in one of the interviews I was listening to this this idea that that even a lot of this language of astrology could be seen in, in many indigenous cultures, for example, in their view of the spirit world, that there's there's something that could that there's something that's maybe unseen and that, that that's also part of what astrology is beginning to get at is is into this world that that maybe is unseen and yet there are people in, in often in, in some indigenous societies that have developed tools or techniques or, or ways to be able to see or to commune or to communicate with mm -hmm. what for many of us would be considered like an invisible world. Mm -hmm. um, how important do you think that is to astrology? Because it seems like a lot of what you're speaking about is actually alluding to, to that. Well, again, I'm not sure I can generalize because the the reality of and connection with those worlds is a very individual thing because technically it's it's not part of the mainstream cosmology that we inhabit. And so, you know, people's individual experience of that sense of other dimensions will vary hugely and so the degree to which that's important or not within their astrology will also vary if you see what i mean and again in in my feeling there's there's no right way to do it in that sense because Ultimately, as with, as with any kind of healing technique, it's a press, it's a it's an it's an expression of the person who's practicing it. You know. You, you were saying something in in your uh, this I think very interesting idea that that for you in your path there was a lot of self-teaching, a lot of discovery, and and that happened before you you kind of got this formal training. And to me, there, there's also a, a real symbolism there, too, in, in this idea of you as, a, as an individual, as your own experience of something, like finding something for yourself versus this because once you go into a realm of a more formal training, that there's a certain collective uh, idea behind that, that 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 we as a group or a class or a teacher are agreeing that, that certain things are important and that this is now how this is going to be taught or spoken of. Um, and I, I was listening in one of the other talks you were doing that that this also this time we're living in, and I think you were referencing it to Chiron about this also dualistic aspect between this individual 
time where there's also a lot of collective I mean, you can probably word it better, but but I think you're you're speaking about it in this terms of there's almost like this collective hypnosis happening, or or mm-hmm. I think you even use the word like propaganda, and and mm-hmm. part of that is that dualistic nature of information that we're being inundated by so much information, which is amazing because we do have access to so many things, um, but also it can become very difficult to decipher like what is real and and what's not yeah. real and. And then that even gets into uh, other things about as we're we're moving forward into to more like artificial intelligence and 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 how does that come into play? But um, but it is really fascinating. And and you know one of the things that, that you seem very connected to are these these this being able to see things from different lenses, which which for me is a sign of wisdom and and. You know, one of the fascinating things over the last couple of years, I think, which really demonstrated this idea of kind of a collective psychosis or hypnosis and how easy it is to, to fall into that and, and how difficult it really is to to think for oneself and, and, mm-hmm. and to come uh, to, to one's own ideas. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's even quite fascinating because even in this, as you were saying, like for you, astrology isn't necessarily in the mainstream. It's more one of these alternative forms of looking at the world. And and even when you look at something like medicine, um, it's very fascinating because even in the last couple of years, while it seems there is an, an, an interest in alternative medicine, it seems like a lot of that was also very lost and that there was only one narrative of how how what is health what what does it mean to be healthy to be sane um yeah and and there was there was one worldview that, that very much took over and if you didn't believe in that you were considered a heretic that's um, right and it, <laughs> in contemporary terms that has to be evidence-based right right <laughs> whatever that means because um, yeah. that's you know usually when I was at university, we used to call it rats and stats. <laughs> In other words, the, the statistical way of proving things and having things be right or wrong and so forth. In other words, it's a quantitative analysis over a generality that has nothing to do with the individual soul process that might be the most important thing in somebody's life and health, you know? And I think you you mentioned something which was really important that that I think a lot of people maybe overlook and and this idea uh, about being in health, you know, which is often correlated to this idea of of integrity, of... of, uh, you know, being integral means to be whole. That means to be in, in ease. You know, a disease is something when we're out of balance, when that, that wholeness has been broken. Um, but this idea of connection to spirit, that, that I, I think you were mentioning that this is actually an integral part of, of someone's well-being, their wholeness, is actually having some sort of, of connection, which I think many of us, we often 
in this more reductionist way of thinking, we, we often overlook because it's not, again, something that's necessarily tangible. We can't mm -hmm. necessarily put our finger on this and be like, well, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and then I have this connection. And yet, you know, even as we were mentioning, so much of, of this seemingly suffering that, that humans experience seems like it can often be coming from this place of lack or, or searching for something, searching for something that's that's above us and within us, that's that's beyond us and at the same time within us. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if, if you can speak to that, about that idea of maybe connection to spirit and that, that role of individual out, individuality and, and also kind of the, this time that we seem to be in where, where there is this, this uh, you know, even in this kind of globalized world, which is very beautiful, <coughs> Um, because there is so much interconnectedness, um, but again, then being able to find one's place and one's individual wisdom and experience, you know, very much kind of bringing it back to how we started with this was, was you finding your own experience yourself, like something that really drew you, uh, and it wasn't something kind of being placed on you from above. It was something that was really coming from, from within. Yes, well, what you what you've just been referring to reminds me of the fact that um, this very day, about four hours ago from our conversation, the planet Pluto moved into the sign of Aquarius, and it'll be there for a really long time, like decades. And also, it, did, it didn't just move into the sign of Aquarius and go through that portal and bang, that's it. It actually moves between the sign it just left, which is Capricorn, and, and the one to which it now is inhabiting, will move between those two for just over 18 months, actually. So we're in a big period of transition and it it's full of endings and beginnings so to speak and Aquarius is the final one of the air signs the other two being Gemini and Libra so it represents the most universal level of the mind and what is so interesting about our current period of time and the age of information is that the whole mind field which we inhabit is super active with lots and lots of information of all kinds and as I mentioned before, not necessarily any understanding or wisdom, that being much more of an inner process. And so what I think about this Pluto going into Aquarius is that the urgency of us learning different ways to use the mind will become more and more apparent, I think. 
and the whole notion of understanding, I think, will deepen because understanding doesn't only happen on an exclusively mental level. Even the word understanding is like we stand under something, meaning that we're on the ground with it. And then wisdom is a much more holistic thing that involves many different organs of perception and organs of learning. So at the moment, the sense of the higher mind that is Aquarius, it's very spread out into the outer world with all of the artificial intelligence and the technology, the communication technology and so on and so forth. But what it also represents, the sign of Aquarius, is a kind of internal, higher, so to speak, learning and knowing about the oneness of humanity. So in that sense, globalism and all of that is an externalization of that principle. So that doesn't mean that it's wrong or bad, but without the internal equivalent, one can get lost in it, and people do. Lost in groupthink not able to sniff out propaganda when you hear it and also putting undue um, emphasis on opinions because almost the whole notion of opinion is an adversarial one or has become so. I, I'm not sure about the, the etymology, but I bet it's something quite subtle in there, you know. <laughs> so in the Aquarian mind, there is room for everyone with a lot of different opinions and views and even cosmologies. Uh without things necessarily becoming adversarial. So that may be um, a view to aspire to in these times because it's a, it, that certainly isn't showing up in the world at the moment, but it is a state of consciousness which has value on its own terms, not least of which is it because it, it enables us to to ride the storm and to uphold the sense of unity despite all appearances to the contrary. So it's not in any way a denial of all the adversarial positions that crop up everywhere rapidly all the time, but it's a capacity to hold that without necessarily becoming reactive oneself. So in that sense, it represents like the overarching dome of the sky and how we can see that as a metaphor for some kind of all-encompassing grace that holds our experiences on a number of different levels 
and in that sense is like a protecting goddess, like in the Egyptian pantheon, the goddess Nut was a sky goddess, and she's depicted kind of arching her body over the earth and often painted with stars all over her body. So that would be a symbol for that higher mind that Aquarius is pointing to. Aquarius used to be ruled by the planet Saturn until Uranus was discovered in the 18th century. And then, well, some astrologers feel that Uranus replaced Saturn as the ruling planet of Aquarius. Others don't even use any of the invisible planets. And I think possibly the majority would actually use both, both the traditional ruler and the new ruler, and to be interested in the dialectic that goes on between the two of them. So Aquarius is a sign that is associated with rebellion uh, or revolution. And ultimately, for me, it's uh, within its Aquarian rulership, it is a sign that represents the field of awakening. And that can be across a number of different levels. And this is definitely something we also see going on in the world today. And it may not always be stuff that hits the headlines, but it's, uh, it's unmistakable, I feel. You had a really beautiful quote. Um... And I, I believe, if, if I remember correctly, you said uh, to, to be healthy during this time is a revolutionary act. Oh, yes. Yes, and I, yeah, I, I do really mean that because, of course, in some ways it relates to the theme of Chiron because the transition in which we find ourselves uh, has had a lot to do with issues to do with health and disease, even the whole pandemic. You know, there were some aspects between Chiron and another one of the centaurs that went on for since 2015 until now-ish. It's almost drawing to a close now. And given that Chiron is often a signature for illness, sickness, wounds, and so forth, and their healing, I was curious about that. I first spotted this pattern in 2015. And so... There's a, there was a trail of seven aspects called squares, which is a 90-degree angle, and is typically a dynamic and sometimes stressful kind of aspect. 
uh, it can be dynamic in the sense of also conflictual, but it can be the kind of conflictual energy that is generated in the process of creativity, or it can sort of implode into conflict that's not necessarily aligned with the creative outcome. Uh, and it was square another centaur by the name of Pholus. So what's interesting about Pholus? Well, m many things. Um, is that there is, in the mythology, there's a specific reference to the four generations. And when I first came across that, I didn't take it literally. I thought it was just a way of saying a long time. But then in the course of my work, I began to see so many examples of when this centaur was activated. There was a theme of the four generations that came out in the person's life, spectacularly so sometimes. And I, I know loads of people and I keep hearing about more and more people on the radio and things like that, who took the opportunity during the lockdown to do some ancestral work and came up with all these absolute gems of information and understanding and things which literally swung their life around. So that's one obvious link there. And then the, the other one is that, so the father of Pholus was a centaur called Silenus. And he too was a hybrid creature, but not a centaur. He was actually like a donkey who had, so he had the tail, of, tail and ears of a donkey. So a human with tail and ears of a donkey. And this character is actually said to possibly be the prototype for Shakespeare's character from the Midsummer Night's Dream, character called Bottom, with the donkey ears and so forth. <laughs> but anyway, Silenus was also the storyteller of the gods and is described in the classics as thus, but with the allusion to the fact that uh, Silenus wasn't above embroidering a story, embroidering the facts for the sake of a good story. Bluntly put, lying. Okay. <laughs> so I was then very intrigued to discover in the work of Rudolf Steiner that um, viruses, or actually bacteria, because viruses weren't yet named when he was alive, but these invisible beings were said to be the consequence of lying. And I thought that was so interesting because that surely has to, been, has to have been one of the characteristics of this last period that we've been through is that many people who have been lying have been found out 
to have been lying. Many things which have been hidden, and in that sense, a lie was being lived, have all been bursting out into visibility. So lies of all kinds have been exposed and exposed and exposed. Absolutely extraordinary. And there was um, a whole kind of trauma in society, pretty much worldwide, some places more acute than others, in which the process of illness has played an absolutely major part, be it the controversy about vaccines, be it the treatment of the disease called COVID-19, many, many almost irresolvable conflicts have blown up around that and they have created enormous divisions within society, even within families and amongst friends and so forth. So different people's opinions about things have become supercharged. There were many other issues which have been like dug up and unearthed and the light shone on them that have surfaced during this last period of about eight years, well, since 2015. Um, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't claim that this set of squares is is the only astrological signification for what we've just been through because it, it, they're definitely not, but they certainly represent one very graphic and interesting trail. If people are interested in in learning more about astrology or incorporating elements of astrology into their lives. Um, and, and I'm sure you must get this question a lot. And, and again, it's, I'm sure it's very personal, but are there, are there things people can do or, or resources where, where people can begin to, better understand or begin to introduce these things in their, into their lives in a more deeper way than, for example, reading the, the Sunday paper and what does your horoscope say for that day? Because, you know, as you're saying, it, it's such a complex, I think, really science. And, and like any science, uh, much like that example you used of this woman, like, where do I start? Um, but uh, I wonder if from your experience you have any, any things that you, you tell the people or advice or, or ways that people can begin to, to, to expand. Because I think a lot of people, there is, much like yourself in your youth, there's, this, there, there's kind of this resonance where a lot of times people hear these things and something begins to awaken and, 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 and they, they want to begin to, to understand more. But, you know... Interestingly, again, in this age of information, sometimes it's it's difficult to, to, to know where to start. Yeah. Well, the first thing I would always suggest is that you start by really um, becoming familiar with the cycle of the moon around the calendar month. Because really 
the understanding of and attunement to that process is something rather foundational in astrology because once you really deeply understand the nature of that cycle from personal experience, not just from reading, then you have a, a basis to understand some of the other planetary cycles. So step one can very usefully be becoming attuned to the cycle of the moon. And when I say attuned, I mean maybe taking time to meditate as near as possible to the new moon and the full moon. Keeping a moon journal about your experience of its rhythms. And then when you're ready, you might b begin to add in the signs of the zodiac. And there I would recommend what to me is still the ultimate book on the signs of the zodiac, which is Dane Rudyard's book called The Pulse of Life. It's been out of print for many years, but um, I believe it's due to come back into print, but you can still get it free online on the website called caldea.com. That's K-H-A-L-D-E-A.com. And you can read the book there online or for a donation. Just an absolutely beautiful little book. And the thing about Dane Rudyard's work is it, it appeals to our feelings and intuitions and felt sense of the meaning of things. So, in other words, getting a really good grounding in your own natural experience of connection with some of the really basic stuff will stand you in very good stead for whatever you want to do with your later studies. Now, there are loads and loads of astrology classes and astrology schools that you can access online. And, you know, I'm sure that if you start by really attuning to the moon cycle and then maybe adding in the signs of the zodiac, and the thing is, give it time. It takes a while to really drop into these other levels of connection. And in the meantime, try not to go to go completely nuts reading absolutely everything that you can lay your hands on, including visiting hundreds of websites and all that, because that will just clog up your mind. Rather, take it slow and respect and honour your own experience and your own learning process. Now, if you want um, a really thorough, really challenging course that will take you from zero all the way up to professional, I would highly recommend the Faculty of Astrological Studies. And um, if you Google that name, you'll get to their website. They are, I believe, the, the, the longest standing 
Western Astrology School in the world. They were founded in 1948. And what's rather nice about that? Oh, there's many things that are nice about it, but um, is so the school doesn't belong to any one person. It's it's almost like it has a presence in the field of astrology that's not connected with only one person or only one or two people. Obviously, as it's been around so long, there have been many people that have been involved down the years, myself included. And it's a very thorough, very grounded and very, very practical kind of course. Um, if that's your if that's your temperament and that suits the purpose of what you want to do, you could always just take their foundation course, which is really solid. And in a sense, you you can't go wrong with that because that might be like a springboard for you to explore all kinds of other things until you find out what is your relationship with astrology. It could be that you have a real calling um, that's not just based on curiosity, but a, a real calling, like a drawing of your energy into that field with the possibility of, you know, giving your knowledge and insights as a service to other people and so forth. So I would say don't rush it. Um, attune to yourself and your relationship with the moon and re reflect on what it is that you're wanting and what you feel drawn to in astrology and then take advantage of all the wonderful sites that there are, all the wonderful astrology schools and teachers. There are lots, but I've mentioned my, my own recommendation there. Well, wonderful, Melanie. Um, are there any topics that we didn't touch on that you would like to, to talk about further? Um, no, I don't think so. That That feels pretty much, I won't say complete because in my experience, conversations about astrology are never complete because it can be in like an endless unrolling, like, you know, rabbits out of hats or whatever, an endless unrolling of different things to explore. But it's been lovely speaking with you and thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you, Melanie. It's been beautiful. I, I could listen to you talk about astrology and, and mythology for, for hours on end. Um, <laughs> we're, we're actually coming up on, on two and a half hours already. What? Um, <laughs> How is that possible? <gasps> wow. <Yeah. laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> if, this um, is the first if people... time that's happening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Time goes by often with these. Um, if, if people are, are interested, people who are listening and, and they they really liked or resonated with, with what you were saying, how can they learn more about you or your work or, or are there things that you offer to people? How, how can people okay. go about doing that? 
So I do have a website, which is just my name, melanireinhardt.com. And uh, there is a page referring to consultations. So there you'll see that I'm not taking any new clients at the moment. Um, but there's a whole list of valued colleagues further down the page. So if you're wanting a reading, there's plenty of resources there. Um, I also uh, periodically write a newsletter, which you can sign up for if you want to. And there's quite a lot of material about all kinds of things on my website. In fact, it's rather like a it's rather like a jungle in the sense of um, it's very dense with all kinds of stuff on it and could probably use a bit of pruning, but you'd be welcome to browse your way around that. <laughs> and there is a whole section on the moon, actually, which will include information about the current uh, cycle, the current meaning, you know, a year's worth or so of dates and times of the exact new and full moons, a couple of meditations, links to other websites and so forth. There's also an events page which will let you know of events that I'm doing forthcoming and so forth. You've also written a number of books. Could you could you briefly talk about the the books you've written and and maybe what the the um, the premises behind them are? So the first one um, was published in 1989, and that was called Chiron and the Healing Journey. Um, and that that was you know as comprehensive a study of Chiron as I could do at that time. Then, after the new centaurs began to be discovered, they were included in a book which was originally published under the title To the Edge and Beyond. And I loved that title, but the, the publisher of that time wanted to change it when it reprinted because she said that it didn't really say anything about what was in the book. So then the new title included a specific reference to the other centaurs, Pholus and Nessus. Um, and the other half of that same book was a, um, a transcript of a, web, a, um, a seminar uh, on the subject of Saturn. And then another book, which was also transcripts of seminars, was about... The, the nodal axis and the four angles of the horoscope. And all of those books were revised and I republished them myself from 2010 to 2013. So the whole lot were revised and in some cases radically updated. In some cases only minor updates. So all my books are available on my webs from my website. You'll also find them on the usual book distribution websites like Amazon or Book Depository, those those kind of things. But they are there on my website with 
a lot more information about what they're about and so forth. Well, Melanie, well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your time and, and you sharing so openly and, and, and sharing in your wisdom and, and all of the work you've done. And, um, and I, I, I really appreciate it and, uh, and just the, the, the generosity of your sharing. So I, I, I wish you all the best. And um, like I said, I, I, I could listen to you talk for another couple hours. So maybe at some point in the future, we, we have you come on and, and share another uh, two and a half hours of wisdom. Well, well, thank you, Jason. It's been lovely speaking with you. All right, everyone. That's it. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, I really enjoyed sitting down and, uh, and and listening to Melanie. She has a lot to share and, and I think a really beautiful way of, of expressing herself and, and not only with astrology, but just, uh, I think, wisdom and, and life at large. So uh, I, I very much appreciate that conversation and I hope you all enjoyed it. As always, if you feel like you're gaining something from this podcast and you'd like to give back, um, uh, that, that really helps me it really helps the podcast patreon is a really good option you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month uh, there's different tiers you can sign up for those tiers give you also different things back things like early access to shows uh, some bonus material q a's um, i'll put a link to that in the show notes and to all of the patrons to all the people who are supporting that way as always thank you very much for your support um, I, I i really do appreciate it um, there's also the ability to donate via paypal I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well and then if you're not able to do that uh, helping with the algorithms really helps to get the show out to a bigger audience so if you're watching this on youtube um, hitting the subscribe button turning on the notification bell liking the video uh, leaving any questions or comments in the comment section and then with the audio version uh, still apple podcast is the big one so liking or following subscribing to the show and also leaving a star rating and a short review is also a really big help so uh, that's it. Uh, my guests coming up after this, uh, I think I'm going to interview my friend and one of my jujitsu teachers, Bruno. Um, and I have a conversation coming up with uh, Joe Moore, who I was on his podcast, Psychedelics Today. So he's going to be coming on uh, this podcast. And... Um, there's a local guy who lives around here. His name is Andrew. He works with a lot of esoteric practices. I'm hoping to have him on. And then hopefully there's also a local Caro guy who uh, hopefully I'm going to be introduced here uh, to him soon. And I'd love to bring him on. Uh, that would be a conversation in Spanish, but I, I do the, the, the translation and subtitles for that. So um, as always, I hope to bring on some really fascinating guests. Uh, again, I hope you all enjoyed this conversation with Melanie. Thank you to her for coming on. Uh, I hope you all are well. Thank you all for the support, and I will see you all on the next episode. Mm -hmm.